Sometimes when I put your name in my phone, I have a little thing that I, I always associate you with somebody in history or somebody in life. And uh, so I'll have more than you just name there. If you look at my phone under William, you'd find William the Conqueror. And uh, <laughs> some of you would like to know what yours are. Guarantee you some others would not want to know what it is. <laughs> Just kidding, just kidding. If you have your Bibles this morning, as I said, turn to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, last week we started our, our first chapter. We had an introduction the week before, and then we took uh, and started chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. And what we did last week, I don't even know if you know this or not, but what we accomplished last week from the Bible was we really defined what ministry really is. You know, we talk about ministry a lot, and we... but uh, and we define ministry as people. But last week, we got to the Bible's bedrock definition. And uh, now you know uh, what ministry is and the aspect of the fellowship of his sufferings. You know, years ago, uh, I had organized a tremendous uh, mission uh, endeavor with discipleship lessons. And the very discipleship lessons that we use here to teach you uh, there was times when <clears throat> I took teams around the country. We went into a church from Sunday morning to uh, uh, Wednesday night and basically had a, a format where we taught those churches how to use the discipleship lessons. And I would take 30 or 40 people with me. And after a while, I trained other guys to do it, and <clears throat> we were doing it all across the country. When the, uh, when the wall came down over in uh, Russia... And all the communist countries kind of reverted back to uh, not being so hostile. In fact, they were, they were wide open. We started taking teams uh, over to places like Romania and, and uh, uh, into Russia and uh, into Bulgaria and all of those places that you've heard me talk about in church history. There were times, literally, when I had teams that were crossing uh, over the Atlantic, one team coming back, another team going over. And we would train those teams uh, very, um, very uh, uh, acutely, very, they, because they had to be ready for uh, all of the problems that they might face, and they had to be able to deal with those. And I, I saw very early on that it was going to take a certain kind of person to be able to do that kind of ministry. This is not a place for uh, people who whine a lot about things and, and get bent out of shape when things don't go right. Most of the time over there, if you go to a, uh, what would be classified as a, probably a third world country, maybe not now, but back then it was, especially coming out of the comm block uh, of the communist Cold War, uh, things were very primitive. And it was a very a tough time, and you didn't have all the best living conditions. You were living with people who didn't have enough food for themselves, let alone feeding you. And we would try to take just about everything along with us that we could be to be as self-sufficient as we could. But I built those teams. I built those teams around five basic principles. And they were the five basic principles. I didn't tell them this, but it's the same five basic principles I had built my Sunday school class as. And that's what I had back then. And it's the same principles that I carry through in building uh, this church. And it was five basic things that they had to show me they had before they could really go. And the first one was adaptability. And then the second one was de uh, dependability. The third one was flexibility. 
The first, fourth one was durability, and the, the uh, last one was compatibility because they were thrust into situations that they had to use all of these qualities. This was no place to be your standard Baptist who has a mindset of, of you know, it has to be this way or I'm not a very happy camper. I remember one in particular. We trained them very, very hardly. We, we, it was much like a boot camp even to the place that we took them on a 15-mile hike and, and, and a, a weekend overnight and, and treated them, uh, had guys that at that point had just gotten out of the, the army that uh, had set up a mock uh, communist camp. And, and we put them through the whole deal. And it was not, I'm your buddy, so it's going to be easy on you. It was everything short of waterboarding, I can guarantee you. <clears throat> and that may have happened too, without my knowledge about it. But anyway. But... <clears throat> You know, one situation I remember that happened uh, was really proved the whole point. I had a team that was deep in uh, Bulgaria, and uh, they were fixing to leave the next morning, and they had to go about six or seven miles to uh, the airport uh, there and then fly out from there uh, about early in the morning. Well, the night before, they found out that there was a labor strike that had come into effect and there was absolutely no transportation anywhere in the city to get anywhere. And, and this is the situation that I'm talking about that you find yourself in. They don't, Europe doesn't run like America. <clears throat> and uh, when they decide they're not going to go to work today, they're just not going to go to work. But here I had a team of 35 people that were stuck six miles from the airport <clears throat> with all of their baggage and all their luggage and everything that they had. And, you know, now there was absolutely no way to get them there. The airlines couldn't help. The taxis didn't work. The buses were out. And it was absolutely nowhere to get there. The team guy that was running at that particular time, I was not on this team, but he was one of my key guys, and, he, uh, uh, and I had full confidence in him. And here's a group of 30-some people that are basically trapped now into Bulgaria. Uh, if they miss their flight, Lord knows when they're going to get home. I mean, to try to reschedule one person might be okay, but 30 or 35 people, that's not a good deal. That team absolutely met together that night late, and they decided that they were going to take matters into their own hands, that they were not going to miss that flight. They all took their luggage and all their stuff in backpacks because of just situations that you might find yourself in. They, uh, they got themselves packed up. They started out about 1 o'clock in the morning in the middle of the night, had a map of the city, followed the railroad tracks, 35 of them, like 35 little beggars on their way out someplace, you know, running away from home, and actually hoofed it all over six miles through all of the things that they had to get through to get to that airport, and they made that flight. Now, that's the kind of, that's, I looked at that, and I thought about that after it happened, and looked back on it many, many years. That's exactly the epitome of those five words that I gave you. Most Baptists, if they found themselves in that situation, would just simply have a meltdown. And when it comes to ministry and being put into the pressure of the ministry, like we're talking about in 1 Corinthians, no meltdowns are allowed. And I, I see that same element in, in much of what goes on here. I, I bring up the last, uh, and this is not by any stretch a, a, a very good comparison, but on the same level, but it, it makes my point. Last time we got down to restart, they had a project that they needed to have done that we knew nothing about. And it was a feather in our cap to get it done and show them that we got the, the muscle to get it done, whatever needs to be done. So I just simply went in among the teams. And, you know, when you're in the military and you get an order, you may not like the order. You may not understand the order. 
But a, a lieutenant or a captain always doesn't have the time, nor will he take the time to explain to you why he's giving you that order. You follow orders. And that's exactly the way it has to be. And I don't always have a time to explain to you why I want you to do this, why I'm pulling you off here and putting you over here. You don't have the luxury many times. Sometimes you do, but many times you don't. Well, my point is this. I stripped some of the teams, got key people up there, and uh, within a heartbeat, we had that project uh, completely done. And that's what I'm talking about is the ability to be able to do that. Then in the middle of the week, I got a phone call in the emergency. There was another thing down there. Can you get anybody to come down? I made four or five phone calls. We had six or seven guys down there and some ladies down there, and we got that done uh, during the mid-morning and was done in about an hour and a half. So these are the kind of things that I'm talking about. And these are the things that you learn about ministry, that ministry, you have to be adaptable. You have to be dependable. You have to be flexible. You have to be durable. And you have to be compatible. You don't always get to pick the people you want to work with. And there's no room for petty problems that you may have uh, because the job needs to get done and the ministry needs to get accomplished. And, you know, in truth, in our study, we define what ministry is through the fellowship of God's suffering. And I'll tell you the truth, from this point on, really, our study of 2 Corinthians is all downhill from here. I mean, the last two weeks were the key. I gave you the, I gave you the, uh, the introduction to it, then I defined chapter 1, what the ministry was. And the bottom line is, if you don't get that, and you haven't got that, the rest of it ain't going to do you a bit of good. And last week we saw that the key to ministry is suffering. We saw that we understand the fellowship of God's suffering first, then we understand that God takes us in our suffering and then breaks us and then makes us so that we can help others. And I want to read the key verses last week, even though we're going to have another set of verses today. I think it'll kind of put it in a, uh, bring, it, bring the two together. He said, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer, or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And we talked about that. We broke those verses down. We found that you help others get through their struggles by how God has helped you get through your struggles and learning the lessons of the mistakes that we make in life, the God of all mercies and comfort. And I talked about how that many of us uh, have made some bad choices in life, and even God will take those and help you if you're willing to learn from your mistakes. And we talked about that this is really the, what I've talked about the week before about you're constant redefining yourself. Redefining yourself now should be fully clear in your mind that basically that through your sufferings, that when you learn from those and God breaks you of who you are to yourself, then he takes those sufferings and makes you able to help somebody else. And in that suffering is where you define yourself. You also want to remember our four-point formula that we're going to carry all through this. We want to learn always to examine ourselves. We want to learn to know ourselves. We want to learn to take heed to yourselves. And you want to learn to prove yourself. And the first thing that 
you know, somebody has to do to get to that point is identify your weaknesses. It does us no good to focus on our strengths and ignore our weaknesses. I would suggest you do the opposite. Ignore your strengths and focus on your weaknesses. And I've told you before a little three-point outline about how to deal with whatever weakness you may have in your life. The first thing you do is identify it. And you recognize what it is. The second thing you do is you isolate it. You get honest with yourself. And then the third thing you do, once you have identified it and you've isolated it, then you annihilate it. You absolutely give it no place in your life and do whatever you got to do and do not stop till it's dead and gone. Now today, we'll look at another passage, as I said, and we'll see another great theme about the trials that we go through and the aspect of understanding ministry. I want to read today for you chapter 1, and we'll pick it up in verse 7. And he says, And our hope, is, uh, our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye also be of the consolation. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, uh, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Now, Father, we ask you to take this today and and give me the ability through your spirit to break it down so these good people can understand uh, this great passage. Lord, help us to walk away today and uh, we leave this building to really focus on those things that we need to understand and see how this applies to where we're at in our ministry and and the suffering and all the things that we need to learn from in our lives to help us. We'll be careful to give you now all the honor and the praise Will you play your blessings today, Father, and and all the things that have to transpire this next week, and we just look forward to your hand guiding it all and doing everything that needs to be done uh, because you're a great God, and these are a great people. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, when I think about suffering in the Bible, I mean, I don't know what you think about it, but when I think about suffering in the Bible, uh, suffering for God, my mind always goes to the book of Job. And I think that the book of Job is a great book that shows us uh, and gives us a lot of insight into, into, into our suffering. It also, uh, you know, we talked about the fellowship of God's suffering. It's also one of the greatest books in the Bible that will put you in touch with that fellowship of God's suffering because it allows you to see uh, in places in Job the actual suffering that Christ went through on that cross, almost by an hour-by-hour basis. The book of Job, not about ministry. There's very little, if there's anything in Job, about ministry directly. But it is a book that defines suffering for us. And I always looked at 1 Corinthians defines for me ministry, and the ministry is suffering. But then Job defines that suffering for me through understanding, like places in Job chapter 30, God's suffering. And, uh, you know, and you know the story of Job. I don't have to spend a lot of time recounting that story. Job is a man in the Old Testament that loses everything he has. Uh, he loses in seven days. You've heard me say this many, many times. He loses in seven days what uh, you and I will never lose in a lifetime. He loses his family, everybody, except his wife. Should have lost her, but he didn't. He loses his family. He loses his house. He loses his ranch. He loses his farm. He loses all of his cattle. He loses all of his sheep. He loses every material possession he has. And then on top of that, he gets bad news from the doctor, and he loses his health. 
And as he's going through an agonizing time with his infirmity, add to that the grief of all that he's lost, and now he doesn't even have a house. The Bible says that he's sitting on an ash heap. And I would suspect that that ash heap is probably left over from the the burned-down house that he once lived in. And he's sitting on an ash heap. He's got boils all over his body. And the Bible says he's taking a piece of broken uh, 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 china, plate, pottery. And he's absolutely scraping the pus off those sores and those boils with once was the dishes that he ate fine food on. And then if that wasn't enough, then he's got three friends that show up. And this, these three friends are where the, the, uh, the little saying comes from, with friends like these, who needs enemies? And these three friends uh, accuse him falsely. I mean, he's he already in deep grief. He's already in deep sorrow. He's already in deep suffering and misery and pain. And nothing anybody wants to hear is the fact that it's all your fault. And that's what they do for him. And, uh, and yet when I look at that, and uh, I look at his life and study that book. I find that Job, in the particular circumstances that he's in, if you ever really studied it, Job has no Bible. He has no Bible. He has no prayer cards like you got. He's got nobody he can call to put on a prayer card. He's got no communication with anybody. As far as he knows, he's the only one who loves God and is standing for God. Everybody else has been dead. He's got no church. He had no old past Baptist church. He's got no place he can go for comfort. He's got no pastor he can call. And if he had a pastor, he's got no way to call him. He, there's nothing. He's got nothing. He's got no friends now. He's got no family now. He's got no church. He's got no Christian TV and radio, though that would help him. He's got none of those things. He can't get a copy of the Purpose Driven Life. He's in a real mess. He's in a real mess. And yet when I study that story and I look at that and it's a story very dear to my heart and I never in my life get too far away from that story. All Job had was his relationship with God. Now, I don't know what that signals to you, but to me it shows me a great truth. And if it shows us anything at all today, it shows us that some of those things that I listed are very important. I mean, your Bible's important, church is important. Family's important. Friends are important. But the reality of all that is, and here's what you got to get from the book of Job. You can have all of those things and not have a relationship with God. You can have a Bible here today and still not have the right relationship with God. You can come to Old Past Baptist Church where I would pride myself on the preaching of the truth. And you can be as far from God today as a member of this church as you could ever get uh, outside of losing your salvation. You could have Christian friends that pray for you, and still you have no relationship with God. You can have a Christian wife or a Christian husband that prays for you and wants you to be everything that God wants them to be, and yet you still have no relationship with God. I've met over my lifetime many, many times. Many, many of God's people know the book. The problem is they don't know the author of the book. They've never built that relationship. So, we know now from 2 Corinthians chapter 1 about our relationship with God and His suffering. When you look at Job and you see His suffering, uh, we get a better appreciation of God now taking those sufferings and building us through them. Because at that point, and you see this in the book of Job, Job's sufferings became God's suffering. 
And then in the book, we find that God's sufferings became Job's sufferings. The book of Job teaches three great truths. And I would suggest to you, and I hope this is not true, but I would suggest to you, if you don't get anything else out of this message, and I hope that would not be true, that you would get home with at least these three things. It would be worth you coming for for this. The book of Job teaches three great truths that we need to remember when we study chapter 1 and we look at the fellowship of his suffering and how it all fits together. The first thing that we learn from the book of Job is the very fact that God by himself is enough. At the heart of everything you have, God has to be the number one thing in your life in that relationship. If that is not true, everything else is meaningless and worthless. If you study that passage, we get the idea that, you know, that poor Job going through what he went through. And we like to say, well, you know, the devil attacked Job and the devil brought all these things on Job's life. And that may be true. But if you study chapter 1 and you study chapter 2, you'll find a phenomenal thing. You'll find that when the devil came in to talk to God, it was God that brought Job's name up. It wasn't the devil. And there'll be times in your life that God will bring your name up before the devil or my name up before the devil because he knows that you have to go through the fellowship of that suffering. See, you can't read Job and get a feel for Job without seeing Job suffering. And that's why God uh, just laced all through the book of Job, Christ suffering on the cross. Because what he wants you to do is see the analogy between the two. So he put them both in the same book. And the first thing I would say to you that you learn the first great truth out of the book of Job, and if you want to understand about the fellowship of the sufferings, I'll tell you this right now. God is enough. And if you don't have the relationship with him one-on-one, you can have, have 5,000 prayer cards. You can have 5,000 verses memorized. It only works if you have the root source, and that root source is... You see, somebody can take your Bible, and down through history they have. Somebody can take your prayer cards. Somebody can take, burn this church down, kill me, scatter us like sheep across. But what nobody can ever take is what you have in your personal relationship with the Lord, unless you let them take it. And that's the first great thing you learn. Second thing you learn is God will make you with the very things the devil tries to break you with. And that's an easy concept, but it's a foreign concept. I'll say it again. God will make you with the very same things the devil takes and tries to break you. You want a commentary? It's a sad commentary. But you want a commentary on human nature? And this is so true. I, I give up years ago trying to figure this out. I just simply know now, uh, with being a little smarter than I was 40 years ago, that human nature is, uh, is a creature unto itself. But it's never ceased to amaze me that many of God's people will openly and willingly allow the devil to break them, but they'll put up such a tough resistance to God trying to break them. Now, you go figure that one out. I mean, at the end of the day, what the devil does when he breaks you is a horrendous thing. It'll ruin your life, ruin your family. All God wants to do by breaking you is to give you everything that he has. But I'll tell you, the second thing you need to remember is that God will make you with the very same thing the devil will break you. And then the third thing, and the last thing that I get out of the book of Job, and I got these three things written right in Job chapter 1 in my wide margin. You're always better, you're always stronger, you're always wiser, and you're always closer to God after you go through the fire than you were before you went through it. 
And that's the book of Job. The book of Job gives a whole new light to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, when it says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God who are called, that's the church, according to his purpose, that's the ministry. All right, well, with that little introduction there, let's look at verse 7 here and look at some things here for a few minutes. He says, And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of his suffering, so shall ye be also of the consolation. Now, Paul says here, and I want to explain a couple of things here that will kind of help you a little bit. He says, uh, Paul says, Our hope, and our hope of you. Now, let me explain this. In the New Testament, the word hope is never a, is always a sure thing. You know, we think of the word hope like, I hope I get this done. Uh, somebody will say, well, you know, I hope the church does what they need to do. That's not the way the word hope is used in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the word hope, anytime you find it, and this will help you every other places. The Bible says, uh, Paul said that my hope is in Christ Jesus. He wasn't saying by that, I hope that, Christ is going to be there for me. He was basically saying, I know he's going to be there for me because Christ is my only hope. You see, hope in the New Testament is always a sure thing. Always a sure thing. And what Paul said, he's, he's sure, he's sure that they're going to learn from their mistakes and that they're going to learn through ministry. He has confidence in this church. I am not sure what turned it around. Because I know in chapter 1, you don't, or in 1 Corinthians, you don't see any confidence in them at all. Now suddenly when we start to come to 2 Corinthians, and it's about a year apart of those books, now suddenly you see this great confidence. And he says, he says I know, I know that now, that uh, and our hope of you is steadfast. He says, I know. He says, I'm not hoping you do it. He says, I know, I, I, my, I hope, I know you're going to do it. You're going to learn from your mistakes, and you're going to learn the ministry. And I, I say it again. Learning from your mistakes is one of the key things that it's a, it's a key commodity of your life. Most people never do that. A lot of reasons is pride. A lot of reasons is they don't care. But you have to be able to learn from your mistake. I think the greatest example of not learning is just looking at history in general, our own country, the United States uh, in general and the mistakes of history. This country has never learned from its mistakes that it made. It didn't learn the mistakes of World War I. At the end of World War I, they thought that was, they called out the war that was going to end all wars. They actually thought there'd never be another war again. They put the League of Nations together, which now is called the United Nations, in 1919, and they actually really believed. They thought, they, everybody thought this. They thought there'll never be another war again. Because the nations, well, they even took a verse out of Isaiah and put it on the United Nations about uh, taking your swords and turning them into plowshares. That's a millennial verse. They actually thought that nations getting together could bring peace. And how long did that last? About 20 minutes. There's been 386 wars and, and minor wars and major wars across this country uh, since they were come into, come into being. And because we didn't learn the lesson of World War I, we got hoodwinked on December 7th, just a couple of days ago, we celebrated the anniversary of Pearl Harbor. We didn't learn the lessons in Korea. So we went back into Vietnam. No, we didn't learn the lessons of Vietnam. 
We never learned from the Russians' defeat in Afghanistan. So we went in trying to do, thought we thought we could do what they couldn't do. Wow, let me tell you something. When the Russians went into Afghanistan, they were the most brutal conquering force probably in the last thousand years that Afghans saw. They poisoned all their water holes. They killed all the people. They annihilated them. They used gas. They just did everything in the world. And we and, and couldn't defeat them. We think we're going to go over with harsh language and we're going to win because we're arrogant. They don't call that nation the graveyard of the empires for anything, for nothing. We didn't learn the lessons. We didn't learn the lessons of what happened on 9-11. We never learned the lessons on dealing with Muslims that the British learned. Back in the, uh, I can tell you how to end the Muslim uprising in 20 minutes. And every Muslim on this planet would be absolutely do whatever you told them to do. It's so simple and so easy. The British learned it when they took over in the 1890s and finally took Jerusalem in 1917. But we don't learn from history. Because we don't learn from history, we're bound then to repeat the lessons. And because we don't learn from our mistakes in our personal life, the same process. We continue to make bad choices and bad mistakes. Out of this passage comes a great concept, out of this verse here. He says, For we suffer for Christ that we are consoled by Christ. That's a great verse. That's a great verse for ministry. No consolation, you see, from God without suffering, but by the same token, there's no suffering without God's consolation. God's got all the bases covered. I think back at three guys I'm going to mention, most of God's people have no clue who they are. And it's to your shame. And I wouldn't ask you to raise your hand, but I'll ask this in a question form. And I'm not asking you to identify yourself or not identify yourself. But how many have ever heard of a guy by the name of Watchman Nee? You don't have to put your hand up. Richard Rembrandt. Harlem Popoff. They are three of the greatest Christian martyrs in the 20th century. Watchman Nee was in China. He was greatly influenced by a British, you might guess, a British missionary with a King James 1611 authorized version in his early years. He grew up in the, in the 20s and up through World War II and, and, uh, when, when, and was severely persecuted uh, for his Christian belief. After World War II and they went communist and all of those things, he's imprisoned in 1952. Nobody ever heard of him after he went into those Chinese prisons. Nobody knows when he died, how he died, but he was severely tortured. All during that time while he was persecuted for what he believed, he, he wrote some of the greatest material on a relationship with God. Some of the greatest material on a prayer life. Some of the greatest material on dealing with things in life. And where his main concerns were for this day was to having his fingernails pulled out and his toes broken one at a time. Your biggest thing is your busy schedule of getting the kids from soccer games to this, and it folds you up like a broken accordion. There's the difference. Richard Rembrandt spent 14 years in a communist prison in Romania before the wall came down. I was in Romania in the, year, in the end of the 80s after the wall came down, and I remember we had a revival at a big soccer field. There was probably 30,000 people there. Everybody wanted to hear Christ. And right there as I was standing there, the interpreter, the guy that I was living with was a young kid and a nice kid. And he was telling me over here that right over here was a big building about six stories high, maybe eight stories high. 
And all the windows were open and the windows were packed with people trying to hear the guy preaching. And he told me that that was the headquarters of the secret police. And he told me that that was the place where Richard Rembrandt was tortured and where every hundreds of thousands of Christians were tortured. And he says, now it's free and Christianity is free and the windows are open. And the very men who tortured Rembrandt were now standing there listening to the gospel being preached. One of the greatest books that he ever wrote was Tortured for Christ. He wrote a number of great books and great sermons. But nobody even knows who they are today. Harlan Popoff spent 13 years in a Bulgarian prison, communist prison, severely tortured. Let me tell you, their works and their writings touched and helped so many struggling people, about hundreds of thousands. Their books and their writings, when you read them, almost have a supernatural side to them as far as their relationship to God. Their struggles helped others, all three of them. And a and hundred thousand, maybe a million other people who nobody knows their name but held a relationship with Christ worth being t- uh, tortured for. They suffered terrible at the hands of their enemies. You know, we quote Romans chapter 8, verse 18, uh, when it says, For I reckon that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. We use it like a punchline. I guarantee you it meant a whole different world to them than it does to us. That's a great verse. It reminds me of Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, when it says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. And all the new Bibles put in, I can do all things through Christ, who strengtheneth me. The language that your King James Bible is written in is the perfect English form and the perfect English structure where every sentence lends to itself to the subject, the predicate, and everything the way it's supposed to be. The new Bibles destroy that. So when Philippians chapter 4 verse 13 says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, they take it and change that I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. They destroy the doctrinal content. It isn't Christ that comes down and strengthens you. It's the things that you do, the which for Christ. The which will always take it back to the former subject when you're reading any verse. You see it here. It says, for I reckon that the sufferings, there's your subject, of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which, see? Now the NIV says that. And by putting that and taking out which, they destroy the biblical doctrinal context. Hey, my friend, it isn't safe for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be. It's not the glory by itself. It's the suffering and the glory, the which, the glory and the which, the suffering go hand in hand. But nobody ever gets that. True fellowship isn't just getting God's glory. True fellowship is the which going through the sufferings that brings that glory. No suffering, no glory. Now, verses 8 and 9 deal with another great aspect here. And it deals with the aspect of something that you've got to learn sooner or later in ministry. You've got to decide who you're working for. Because a lot of things in the ministry, you have a tendency to take personal. People will say things that will hurt you. People will say things against your family. People will do things against your family. People will say things against you. 
And they're all things that in a human form and a human nature, we think we have to defend ourselves. But I'm telling you right now, the way that you sidestep that and you deal with that is keeping one thing in the back of your mind. Who are you doing this for? Who are you working for? Are you working for yourself? Are you doing this for you? Then if you are, then you have a right to get upset. But if you're doing it for him, then you don't have a right to get upset. That is the greatest single thing that I find in my own life that keeps me from taking things personal. Because you take, don't think takes personal because you never forget. When somebody takes a cheap shot at you, somebody's out to hurt you, <clears throat> somebody's out to, to, to get you, you realize that they're not out to get you, they're out to get God. Because if they were just out to get me, it'd scare me to death because I'm just a mortal man and you can get to me. But boy, you try to go after him, you got your hands full. And I'm in Christ. You want to get to me? You got to go through him. So you never forget who you're doing this for. You never forget who you're working for. Because verse 8 and 9 here deals with seeing those trials and sufferings that you're going to have to go through from God's standpoint. And it's really the key to effective ministry, getting God's perspective. Now he says in verse 8 and 9, For we are not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we have the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Now, exactly what Paul was going through here has never been recorded for us. Not found in the book of Acts. I don't think it's found anywhere in the Bible. A lot of things aren't. But exactly what he was going through and how bad it was, the details, just not recorded for us. And, uh, but whatever it was, it was one of those situations where Paul thought that he was going to die any minute. It was a situation so bad that he says in verse 9, but we have the sentence of death in ourselves. Now, most of us have never been in a situation where we thought that we were going to die simply because of what you were doing for the Lord. I, most of us have never gotten there. And when I read things like this, and I read the story about Harlem Popoff and Richard Rombrandt and Watchman Nee, it really, when you get it, read it, it makes me feel so ashamed of myself or the things that bother me and mess me up uh, that mean absolutely nothing. I hope at the judgment seat of Christ, I'm a long way down the line from those three guys. Because when God displays what their sufferings was and how they, they, they didn't give up, and then he displays what my sufferings is and how quickly I did give up, I just would better be removed down the line about a million people. But Paul had been in that situation many, many times. Now, there's two great principles that come out of this, and two verses that, that help us see this suffering from yet another angle within this passage. We've already seen how that our suffering and what we go through is to help somebody else as God helps us. We've got that pretty good down now, don't we? But now here's the other thing you want to look at. There's two things here. Verse 8 says that we were pressed out of measure, above strength. Now, verse 8 simply deals with an issue that you and I have to face all the time. He says that we were pressed out of measure, above strength. That means beyond your control. 
Do you know in all of us that's the number one problem we have? Always wanting to be in control. We all want to have control of our lives, and we don't like when God, uh, we don't like being in situations, I know I don't, <clears throat> we don't like being in situations where we're not in control. Uh, and that's a, and that's a, you know, that's a, that can be a good quality to a certain degree. I like people who are assertive. I like people who uh, get things done. I like people that have a good self-confidence about them. I admire that in people. I think that that's a good character trait. Somebody who is confident in themselves and and uh, and can and, and can get it done without somebody looking over their shoulder. I think that's an admirable thing. But it's like anything else in life. Your best qualities can also be your bad qualities if you don't have them in balance. Because you can take this control thing too far where you've got to be in control of everything. And it'll, ne- it'll never work out when it comes to God. It just never will. Uh, we want to be in control of all of our circumstances in life. And let's face it, giving up that control is very hard to do. I've seen God's people do that all their lives. <clears throat> I told you last week about a great character study in the Bible by Jacob in Genesis chapter 32. That's his basic issue. Genesis chapter 32 is about a man named Jacob. The James Jacob means schemer. And he's somebody who absolutely takes control of everything in his life. When God wants to do it another way, Jacob wants to do it his way because Jacob has an ulterior motive and he has a, something that he wants out of this for himself. And it takes going to that wrestling match and God pinning him down and going through that great uh, thing in chapter 32 before he came to the end of self. And that's just the way we are. I've seen, I've, seen, I've seen God's people do it all their lives. I've seen it do it with their kids. I've seen it do it with their jobs. I've seen it do it with their money. I've seen it do it with everything in their life that they're saved, they're on their way to heaven, but you know what? I don't want any adversity in my life. I don't want any trouble. I don't want to rock the boat. So I'm just going to steer myself through life and go to church on Sunday and have a good relationship with God. Doesn't work that way. I've seen pastors do that with their churches and their ministries. I've seen pastors take complete control of everything. They control everything and everybody. They'll tell you who you can talk to and who you can't. They'll tell you who you can marry and who you can't. They'll even get to tell you who, who you should date and who you shouldn't. Uh, they'll, they'll, I know a pastor that in his church, if the husband and wife were having a problems and the wife went to the Pastor and said he's doing this, or she he he'll go in the house and he'll he'll go in the house with some deacons and he'll remove the wife from the house, or the husband. Now, folks, I got to just tell you something here. Now, I know a pastor is the lead, and I know you have to lead with principles. But may I just say this to you? There's a lot of things in churches and a lot of things that goes on in people's lives that's just none of the pastor's business. I have people come to me from time to time when. Some of you will hook up with somebody else, you know, that love's in the air thing. And everybody has an opinion about everything. You got this guy over here, you know, and he's lonely and he sees this gal over here and she's lonely. So the two of them start going out and the first thing you know, everybody's got an opinion about it. And it isn't a matter of time before somebody comes to me, what do you think about so-and-so? You know what I always tell them? I said, I don't think it's any of my business. And I don't think it's any of your business either. Now, maybe that's a little harsh for some of you. I thought I'd get more amens on that, but I evidently I didn't. <coughs> well, thank you. <coughs> feel a little bit better. But truth of the matter is, you know, my job 
Here's it is. What, here it is. Real simple. My job is to preach the truth. That's my job. My job is every time I'm up here, I preach the truth. I open up that book and I give you, you may not like it, but it is the truth. Now, that's my job. That's all my job is. Your job is to take that truth and apply it to your life. Now, that's all it is. Now, if you don't want to do that, it's okay with me. I'm not upset with you. I still love you. You're my buddy. We'll go, we'll do, but the bottom line is, that's where it ends for me. Now, if you come to me and you got a problem and you got an issue and you tell me what it is, I'll tell you what the Bible says, but I'm not going to tell you what you need to do because I'm not the one who's got to do it. But I will lay out what the Word of God says. You don't come to me and do your own thing. I'm still okay with that. I really am. You're not going to see me tapping somebody on the shoulder and saying, well, you know, I, you know, I know you're dating so-and-so over here, and I, and I don't think that that's a very good thing for you. Uh, uh, you ask my opinion, I'll tell you. You don't ask my opinion, it ain't none of my business. It ain't none of my business at all. You know what? You, you're who you are, and, you know, I'm here if you make the right choice for you, and I'm here if you make the wrong choice for you. I would hope that you would make the right choice and apply the truth that I gave you, but not everybody is going to do that. But I don't, you don't have any control of that. You just don't. My job is to preach the truth and to put the truth out. It's your job to take that truth and apply it to your life. Now, the only exception to that is, is somebody in a position of leadership, deacon or a pastor, whatever. You know, in, the, in Bible leadership is always held to a higher accountability, so that's a different thing. You know, in the military, Bob would know this, and, 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 and you and I talked about this. The military is basically divided in two sections. You have the professional soldiers, then you have what they call the citizen soldiers. The professional soldiers are the guys that they make a career out of it. And they're really, they're really, they're called professionals. They look at guys like us who went in and did our two-year, three-year, four-year, and then leave. They look at them as citizen soldiers. It's a lot like the difference between a, an officer who goes to West Point and an officer who goes to officer candidate school. West Point takes four years, teaches you everything you need to know, and you come out an officer. OCS puts you out in 90 days as an officer. And in the military itself, you have the professional ranks, That'll be the guys that are going to make a career out of it, been in there 20, 30 years. Our guy Shane, he's a professional. He's made a life career out of it. You know, he's a professional. He's a pro. And the military within itself, they look at the other guys who just come and go, and they know that they're coming and passing through and going, but they know they're going to be there for the next 20 years. And all churches are a lot that way too. You have your core of leadership who is going to be here forever. Then you have people who come and go. And the military would be nothing. It would be nothing without the professionals. They always say that the sergeants are, are the backbone of the military. And that's true. And most of them are professional guys. And they used to say when I was in, the greatest position to have would be a, an E6 or E7. And somebody would say, why is that? He said, because you have all the authority of the general, but none of the responsibility. There's a lot of truth in that. Why? Because you're a professional. The, the younger guys are taught to look to the older guys. And the older guys lead the way. 
But there's a clear schism between the two of how they look at it. Officers will look at somebody who's never been to officer candidate school and not even consider them a real military guy, even though they're in the military. And that's the way it is in ministry. You have your garden variety Christians who just come and go. God bless them. I love them. It's okay. But in any army, and it's truly to in God's army, you have the cadre. You have the lifers. You have the people who are not going anywhere. And they're going to stick and they're going to stay. And your enlistment is not going to be up. You're not going to do your two years or three years or four years and then told, take what you learned and go out to the private world and get your GI Bill and go to college and be something out there. You're not going to do that. You're going to stick in, stay in. You'll go wherever they send you. You'll do whatever they want you to do. You'll fight wherever they tell you to fight. That's the professionals. And that's just the way it is in God's place too. Same thing. Same thing. And so you see that, that the churches and all this thing goes together. And you see that the first thing he says here that is that they were pressed out of measure. And I say all that to simply say this. Sometimes for God to make us and get us where he wants us to be, we have to be pressed out of measure. We have to get into situations where we can't have any control of it. We have to get into circumstances that it's above our strength. We have to be put in situations that is hopeless, situations that are helpless, situations that if God doesn't come through, we're shot. I heard a story one time of a little kid. They asked him to pray uh, before he went to bed. Mom and dad had been praying with him, you know, when he stayed in his prayers. And now they said, now tonight, why don't you pray, Billy? And Billy said, oh, I'd love to pray. And they're down there all on their knees, and little Billy starts praying. He says, dear God, he says, he says, bless mommy, and he says, bless daddy, and take care of my sister, and, and take care of all my friends, and, and take care of the, my puppy, and take care of, of mom and dad, you know, over and over again, take care of this and that. And, and he's getting toward the end, and he says, and he says, oh, yeah, Lord, and he says, and, and please take care of yourself, because without you, we're shot. <laughs> and boy, that's just about the way it is. But sometimes God has to put us in a situation that we're pressed out of measure. You know why? So you give up control of it to Him. So sometimes God puts you in a situation that is absolutely horrendous, absolutely unbelievable, absolutely think that there's no way out of this. Paul said they were in a place where they were pressed out of measure that they had the sentence of death in them. Now that's pretty crucial. That's pretty crucial. That's pretty crucial. I always tell people the, the best situation you can ever be in. People talk to me about, you know, things that happen in their life and bad things. I say, you know what? I tell them a couple of things. I say, first of all, I say this. I said, the best situation you can find yourself in is this. You're on the railroad tracks and your car stalled. And those stupid automatic door locks have jammed. <laughs> and the windows are up. And you stalled right on the railroad tracks. And you look up there, and 400 feet from you is the Cannonball Express doing 60 miles an hour. You are much better to be in that scenario in the will of God than you are home in your bed with the covers tucked up around your neck out of the will of God. I tell people, you know what, the position a Christian ought to be in, we talk about being out on a limb. That's where a Christian ought to live. 
You ought to be out on a limb out there in a big high tree that's about 500 feet off the ground and that limb is really shagging and that tree is already dead and you look back and the only thing you see there at that thing is the Lord Jesus Christ standing there and you get kind of a tinge of, of okay, it's going to be okay. And then you see he's got a hacksaw in his hand and a smile on his face. <laughs> that's the best situation to be in. So sometimes we have to be pressed out of measure above strength. So God can get us where he wants us to be. Then the second thing found, it's found in verse 9. And this is the reason why, again, we go through a lot of tough times. He says in verse 9, But we have the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not, here it comes again, here's another one, trust in ourselves but in God which, see that thing? Now all the NIV changed that which to who? Because they think it's God himself that raised up the dead. And when you study your Bible, it wasn't. It wasn't God himself. It was Christ trusting in God who raised him up. The witch. Christ trusted God to raise him up from an impossible situation called death. Paul is trusting in God to raise him up from a situation that is eminent death. And you and I are to take that verse and trust God, realizing that it's our trust in God, the witch. It's going to get you through. It's going to keep you and I from coming, going to get you to come to the end of self. You know, my favorite trust verse in the Bible, and I'm sure this is very familiar to all of you, but to me it's my favorite one. It's in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, where it simply says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lead not to thine own understanding, and all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. That's a good tree limb verse. Easy to do, easy to quote when you're not facing an impossible situation in life. But I'll tell you what, coming to the end of self and not trusting in ourselves, these are why he does what he does here and says what he says, being pressed out of measure, a sentence of death above strength. And then he says that he does it that we should not trust in ourselves, but trust in the one who raised up his son, now, this is what real brokenness is. Talked to you last week about being broken. This is what brokenness is. This is what redefining yourself is. Coming to the place where you simply do not trust in yourself. Let me give you one of the greatest Bible verses that you're ever going to, ever going to get that forms really the heart of all we do in our relationship with Christ. And we've talked about how that is the core. A couple of weeks ago on Thursday night, it was Nikki Brown, I do believe, that asked a question out of Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, about faith. And she wanted to understand how that passage really equated to faith and what it was all about from the Bible standpoint. And I remember telling you that night that I didn't get into it the way I'm going to talk to you about it now because I knew this was coming. I didn't want to, you know, shoot all my rounds out of my clip. So I, I basically just gave you a passive answer knowing that, uh, that I would get to it at a certain time. I told you faith is not looking forward. Faith is not just blindly stepping out by faith and trusting God, rolling the dice, so to speak, hoping it comes up seven. Uh, but, but faith in reality, uh, you know, it, it's basically built on your relationship with God in three areas. And you need to always keep before you uh, these three areas, and they're found right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we're to walk by faith and not by sight. 
This is the key to that verse what I'm about to give you. It's found in verse 10. Now, just so you keep the context straight, remember now this verse, verse 10, and the context of it is them being pressed out of measure, verse 8, having a sentence of death on them, verse 9, and then verse 8, despairing even life. What I'm about to show you is the key to what got them through. It's the key to what will get you through. If from this day forth you'll never forget what I'm about to tell you. One of the greatest principles on your relationship with God that will help you in every circumstance and situation I could ever imagine. Verse 10 says this, Who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Three incredible aspects to what I talk about when I say our working relationship with Christ. Remember going back to Job now one last time. You can have the Bible. You can have a church. You can have a Christian wife, Christian husband. You can have Christian friends, Christian family. None of that guarantees you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And when faced with the terrible ordeals of the suffering in the ministry and in life, when you're at your darkest hour, when all looks hopeless, when all looks like it's going to go on forever and there's no end and you're literally pressed out of measure, you remember three things. You simply keep these three things in your mind. And this is one of the greatest little three-point outlines you'll ever get anywhere on this planet. Brother, this thing will preach. He says in verse 10, Who hath delivered us from such a great death? You see, when you look at that, that's past, isn't it? Who hath delivered us? That shows you that God saved you for a purpose. God delivered you from hell for a reason. And you never want to lose, no matter how dark it gets, no matter how bad it gets, no matter what circumstance you're in, you never want to not look back and remember who delivered us so from such a great death. In the past, God saved you for a purpose. He saved you for a reason. And if you're fulfilling that purpose in ministry, you have absolutely nothing to fear. You're part of the fellowship of his sufferings. Then he says the next phrase, who delivered us from such, so, so great a death? And then he says, and doth deliver. That's present tense. Because he saved you for a purpose. Because the past was part of his plan, so is the present. And just as who hath delivered us, he doth deliver us today. Because he saves you for his purpose and you're doing his work, he'll take care of you. Too many of God's people are looking at tomorrow's problems with the grace God gave them today. You hold these three things in your life, who hath delivered us, who doth deliver us, and then the future aspect, the third thing, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. If he was there back then, he's here today, he'll be here tomorrow. And that is the three-point thing that will get you through. If you're suffering through the fellowship because of what you're doing right, when it gets pressed out of measure, when you have the sentence of death, when it looks like there's no way out, you simply draw back and remember, He saved you for a purpose, and you're not done with that purpose till He says you're done. And the same God that hath delivered us will deliver you today, and then in whom we trust that He will yet deliver us, He's going to take care of you tomorrow. Now, in the Bible, my dear friend, this is called resting in the Lord. I'm about to give you the greatest passage in the Old Testament 
on resting in the Lord. And it's found in Psalms chapter 37. And this is another killer outline to preach. Psalms chapter 37 is the definitive passage on resting. And resting is the key to you getting the job done. It's like when you shoot a deer. It's like when you shoot anything. It's like you have to have control. You get control of your breathing. You calm down. You don't get buck fever. You don't shake all over the place and miss the target by a mile. You stop. You hold the rifle strongly. You get a deep breath. You calm down. You take it. You align your sight with the back sight. And you squeeze the trigger. You don't jerk it. And you hit your target. Okay. When you're in the middle of adversity, we know that it's put there to throw you off the mark. Do the exact same thing. Think of God in the context of your suffering past. He saved you for a purpose. Present. You're going through it right now that he's going to make you for the future. And then you rest. You rest. Your ability to rest is your ability to be functional in the midst of conflict. It's the ability as a leader or a pastor to have your whole world crashing down on your shoulder with a thousand issues. And yet nobody knows. Why? Because you realize that they ain't my problems. They're God's problems. And you rest so you can do the job God has called you to do. There's times that I've stepped in this pulpit, times that I've been there on Thursday night, that my heart was so heavy and I had such a, a weight on my shoulders and things that I had to deal with in, in people's lives and things that were going on that if, it, that if, if it, it, it would be any wonder how anybody could ever get up and stay focused and keep your mind on what you're doing and not just dribble, drabble off and babble like some madman. And the key to it is resting in the Lord and realizing, you know what, Lord, they ain't my problems, they're your problems. And the same God has saved me back there and got me through today. You're going to deal with these things down here. So I'm just going to go preach and I'm going to go teach. And you rest. Here it is. Psalms 37.1. Fret not thyself because of evildoers. Neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. And boy, does God have a power mower. Now here comes your outline, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, and verse 7. First point of the outline is simply this. Here's where it starts. Trust in the Lord. Verse 4, delight thyself also in the Lord. Verse 5, commit thy way unto the Lord. Verse 7, then rest in the Lord. See that thing? There's your formula. Just that simple, based on past, present, and future. In other words, as my old father and the Lord used to say, never doubt in the darkness what God has given you in the light. Those three concepts are the key to your salvation and understanding your eternal security as a believer. Past, present, and future. Now, I gave you the practical side. Now I'm going to preach to you for about 30 seconds the doctrinal side. And if this don't light your fire, your fire, you get your wicks wet. That's all I can tell you. He says in verse 10, who hath delivered us? Who hath delivered us? That's past. That tells me you and I at the time of salvation, we were delivered from the penalty of sin. Praise the Lord. He hath delivered me 
In a practical application, he delivered me from my problems. In a doctrinal application, he delivered me, he delivered me from the penalty of sin. I'm no longer going to hell. He took it from me. And when he hath delivered me, that's the day I got saved and blessed God, he delivered me from the penalty of sin. But then it says, doth deliver us. That's present. That's today. And where in the past I was delivered from the penalty of sin. Today, I'm delivered from the power of sin. Sin has no more dominion over us. We have the victory in Christ Jesus. Why? Because in the past, I was delivered from the penalty of sin. And today I stand here and you stand here if you're saved and we have been delivered from the power of sin. What's your deal? So past, he delivered me from the penalty of sin. Present, he delivered me from the power of sin. But all the future, he will yet deliver us. Oh, when I got saved, he delivered me from the penalty of sin. Today he delivers me from the power of sin. But bless God, when my Jesus comes back and takes me out of this mess, I'll be delivered forever from the presence of sin. So he delivered me from the penalty. Today he delivers me from the power. And when he comes for me, I'll be delivered from the presence. And I'll tell you what, my friend, that's what gets you through. That's when your world comes crashing down around your shoulders. That's when you start to minister and all hell breaks loose. And you have every, everything coming at you. Everything that you got to prioritize that you can't. And ministry goes to the back burner. These are the things that keep you. And I'm telling you what. With all of these things that I've given you, my advice to you and every man and woman in here is what I preached a couple of weeks ago about uh, Ritterberg and Ladley. I say to you, play the man! Do the ministry. Suffer the suffering. Because it's the fellowship of his suffering that makes you and me conformable unto his death. The Bible says that you and I are dead and our life is hid with Christ. Colossians 3.3 Have you ever been to a funeral? Ever been in that casket? Ever saw the body in there? You know that absolutely nothing you say, nothing you do, Nothing that you would, any derogatory remarks, flip the casket over, do whatever you want to do. Cut their hands off, their feet off, their head off, and say whatever you want to say. In reality, nothing bothers a dead man. And if you're saved this morning, you're dead to the things of this world. You're dead to what people say about you. You're dead to what people try to do to you. You're dead to those things, and you're alive under Christ Jesus. Why? Because you were delivered and I was delivered from the penalty of sin, from the presence of sin. And I'm going to be delivered in some time from all of the sin that was around me today. It's going to be free from me. Sin has no power over me today. It has no more power over you today unless we leave it. And my dear friend, this is the, this is the add-on to what we saw last week. This is now week by week. You're learning the process to have a victorious Christian life and to get yourself into ministry. Reeling that it's going to come. It's going to happen. And maybe some of you wouldn't are not willing to pay that price. That you, but just stop and think where you would be today if some preacher somewhere in your life was not willing to pay the price you'd never have what you got today. 
And out there right now, just like some of you are dependent on what I've been through in my life to help you, I guarantee you there's somebody down the road that is dependent on you to help them with what you want to go through right now. Some of you won't do it. Your choice. Your choice. The ministry. The ministry is being redefined for all of us as the suffering, the rebuke, the ridicule you have to take to take the right kind of stand. Well, I'm finished. This week, let's get it done. I'm going to give you about a five-minute break here. I need the guys to get the save table set up for